Keep your Bible open to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. You know, last week I preached a sermon called Honoring Your Father and Mother. And uh, there's one thing that I did want to say in the sermon that I didn't mention is uh, for those who had a season of rebellion and you just kind of went bug wild, you know, up in the clubs, doing drugs, um, sleeping around, whatever you end up doing, uh, when you come back to the Lord, I would encourage you, don't swing from rebellion to guilt. You know, trying to be good to your parents to make up for the years that you caused them pain is not honorable or healthy. Just love them well today is my advice. When you are driven by guilt, it shows that you've yet to allow the gospel to truly touch you and renew your thinking. The gospel does not call you to create your, ato- your own atonement. It commands us to receive the atonement of the cross and to start new. And so being driven by guilt, it's like the prodigal son saying to the father, thanks father for your generous offer to be restored as your son, but it's just too much. I must atone for the pain that I've caused you. It's just a complete ridiculous response in the face of the amazing grace that God offers to us. And so Even if your parents are trying to put you on a guilt trip, don't let them put you on that trip. If you've had a season of rebellion, you're returning to the Lord and you want to honor your parents today, then just begin to honor them well starting today. Amen? Amen. Let's look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 11. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. These are the women. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, these men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven And to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They did not believe them. You know, back. In the time of Jesus, it was tough being a woman. Because here the women, they have this encounter with what seems to be two angelic beings. They see a tomb that's empty. They report it back to all the men that are gathered. And they did not believe the women. You know, women, women of God, you've come a long way since the time of Jesus. The power of your words has gotten stronger and stronger over the centuries, hasn't it? I believe that's because of the power of the gospel. I think it was always God's plans to restore the authority of of a woman's voice and testimony. Amen? All the women said amen? Amen. The gospel is for you, women of God. Today is Easter Sunday. And to Christians, this is the day on which Jesus resurrected from the dead. We as Christians believe that Jesus predicted his crucifixion. And then he suffered and died on the cross, was buried. And then on the third day, he resurrected from the grave. And because of this resurrection, we can have hope that we also 
will share in this resurrection. And that one day our physical bodies. Touch your physical body right now. Your physical bodies will be transformed to be like Christ. And to live with him for eternity. You know, Christianity is not about just being in this spirit state and going to heaven and floating around on clouds. Okay. The Christian basic orthodox belief is in the resurrection of your physical body. And the model and the pattern is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ was in a physical body. Amen. Now, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no Christianity. It will be a useless religion full of just gullible people. The Apostle Paul said it like this. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Without a resurrection, there is no forgiveness and atonement. Without resurrection, there is no hope for your future. There is no guarantee what will happen to you in the future. The resurrection is central to the faith, to the Christian faith. Now, for Christians and for people listening who are exploring Christianity, the resurrection is so central to the Christian faith that it is worthy of careful examination. So today... We're going to examine the resurrection of Christ. Now, before talking about the resurrection of Christ, I like to talk about what the resurrection is not. Uh, the following points can be found in Mark Driscoll's book, Doctrines. And, uh, you know, I highly recommend that book. It's got a lot of good orthodox teaching uh, about our Christian heritage. Resurrection is not revival. Revivification. Revivification. Everybody say revivification. Revivification is when someone who dies comes back to life and then later dies again. This is what happened to Lazarus in the New Testament. He was raised from the dead, but then later on, he died again. Christian resurrection teaches that the person who dies will one day be raised to physical life forever. Never to taste death again. The Bible calls this everlasting life. Everlasting life. And it is patterned after the death and resurrection of Christ. This is the Christian resurrection. Resurrection is not reincarnation or purgatory. Reincarnation is the belief that the human soul goes from one body to another through a a succession of lives in pursuit of this purification until you become uh, into oneness with the divine, the deity. Purgatory teaches that when someone dies, they go to a place where they can mature and be purged or purified until they finally qualify for heaven. The Bible does not teach either of these things. You know, some people, you know, believe in reincarnation. They say, you know, I used to be a movie star in my former life. You must have done some bad things to be where you are now. Or I used to be a tree. (laughs) And people believe all kinds of things about reincarnation. But let me tell you right now. Reincarnation is not taught in the Bible. Neither is purgatory. The Bible teaches Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed, it is destined for man to die once. And after that, to face judgment. You only get to go through death once. And after that, it's time to explain yourself. Resurrection is not universalism. Universalism, which Unitarians believe, by the way, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a Unitarian. There's some famous Unitarians in in history. Uh, Universalism teaches that every person in the human race 
will eventually go to heaven and escape God's wrath against evil. Resurrection is also not annihilationism. Everybody say annihilationism. Annihilationism annihilationism teaches that at some point after death, people will cease to exist rather than be tormented in an eternal hell. So some Seventh-day Adventists believe that unbelievers will be punished for a season for their sins in the lake of fire and that eventually just cease to exist, be annihilated. Jehovah Witnesses believe in annihilationism. And they teach that hell is a doctrine that came from paganism. The Bible teaches Daniel 12 too. And if also you look in the book of Revelation. The Bible clearly tells us that both believers and unbelievers will rise. And some will go to everlasting life and others to everlasting hell. Daniel 12 too says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Resurrection is not universalism or annihilationism. Resurrection is not soul sleep. Anyone ever heard that term soul sleep? This is the teaching taught by Seventh-day Adventists where both the body and spirit lie at rest in the state of soul sleep. Until the final judgment. But this is a misinterpretation of the New Testament uh, text. When the New Testament talks about believers being asleep. The Apostle Paul talks about believers being asleep. It is being used as a metaphor to distinguish the death that believers have from the death that unbelievers have. It's not talking about a literal sleep. This unconscious state that people are in until the final judgment. Instead, the Bible, uh, Apostle Paul teaches that when you die, you get to be with Jesus immediately. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Apostle Paul taught that when you die, you appear immediately. By the blood of Christ, you appear immediately in the presence of God. Resurrection also does not mean life after death. Christians believe that life after death does not initially include the physical body. Rather, a person's spirit and soul goes to be with God and will wait in a conscious state, not a soul sleep, until the final resurrection when our soul is reunited with our body. You know, kind of like Iron Man, right? The Iron Man suit. Yeah, you get reunited with your physical body. Paul talks uh, about preferring in 2 Corinthians 5 eight. He says, I prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For unbelievers, their soul goes to a conscious place of suffering where they await the final judgment and thereafter are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the Christian doctrines of resurrection. Now, that I've given you more clarity on the Christian concept of the resurrection, I'm going to talk about biblical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First, biblical evidence is the prophecies that were made about Christ's resurrection. Uh, About 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah, he prophesied that the Messiah would be born... And that he will be pierced for our transgressions. And that afterwards he will rise again. I'll read Isaiah 53 verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life onto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The Old Testament predicted the birth, death, 
and resurrection of Jesus. Hundreds of years before it happened. When Jesus was on the earth, he himself predicted his resurrection on numerous occasions. If you look through the Gospels, especially the days leading up to him being crucified, he continually tells his disciples, Hey, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of wicked men. He will suffer, die, but on the third day he will rise. And his, and his followers, they were so set on a political Messiah that they were blinded to the mission, the first mission that Christ came to accomplish, which is to die on the cross to fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies about him. Uh, in Luke 24, 7 here, we read today, these uh, two angelic beings, they say, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So even these angels are saying, look, Jesus already predicted it. And what's happening right now is just a fulfillment of those predictions. That's the first biblical evidence of the resurrection of Christ is that it's of supernatural origin and fulfillment. Because it was predicted hundreds of years before it even happened. Another biblical evidence is, according to the Bible, Jesus died a real death. He died a real death. So if you think about it just from a medical standpoint, Jesus, before he was crucified, did he get a good night's rest? No, he did not sleep a wink. Why? Because he was praying all night in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing he's about to be betrayed by one of his own followers. And then he was betrayed. And then he had to stand uh, before an unjust trial. He was ridiculed, continually interrogated. And then he was scourged. Am I saying that right? Scourged. Scourged. You know, I have a funny way of pronouncing certain words. Forgive me if I'm saying it in a way that annoys you. But I'm going with scourged. You know, all these English teachers in here, and they can't agree with each other. Scourged. Uh, this scourging was so severe that some men died before even making it to the cross. So Jesus had no sleep. He was continually interrogated. He gets scourged. He's bleeding. Then he had to carry his own cross, which he could not even finish without the help of another man. And then finally, he was crucified. And as he's up there, he dies. Now, there were two criminals that were crucified with him. They didn't die by the crucifixion. Because you know why? Crucifixion was not meant to kill you. The crucifixion was simply meant to uh, humiliate you, shame you, and to torment you. It was not a killing execution type of process. The only reason Jesus died is because he didn't get no sleep the night before. He was bleeding a lot. And, and, and the Bible actually tells us that Jesus, he didn't get his life taken from him. He voluntarily, he, he laid down his life. He voluntarily gave up his spirit. That's, when, that's the moment he died. But these are the two criminals. Uh, they... They didn't get the harsh treatment, so they were still alive. So the way that they kill you after the crucifixion is they break your legs. So they just take a big old paddle and you break your legs, and then you can't hold yourself up anymore, and then you suffocate to death. But Jesus, they didn't have to break any of his legs. It was actually to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy, and none of his bones would be broken. He was already dead. And so the way that the Romans, they confirmed whether someone was really dead or not was they took a spear... And they pierced his side. It's really unfortunate. I've seen uh, skits about the cross. And in these skits, many times Jesus is still alive. And then it's the spear that kills him. <laughs> this is completely inaccurate. The spear was not driven in to make sure he's dead. It was to verify whether he was dead or not. And the Bible tells us that when the spear was plunged through his side, it pierced his side. There was a flow, a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, why is this significant? 
If I took a spear right now and I pierced your side, you know what will flow out? Just blood. And only blood. I want to see orange juice. I want to see, you want to see water, you would just see blood. For, for, for a person whose heart has stopped beating and the blood is no longer mixing with the different fluids in your body, you pierce their side and you're going to see a differentiation between blood and water. And it was to verify that Jesus had died a real death. Not only this, let's say he actually, his heart stopped beating for a minute and it just kind of came back to life somehow. Medically, he, he like somehow survived everything. Then these women that were crying out their eyes, you know what they did? They wrapped them in all these linens, almost a hundred pounds of linens and spices. I mean, if the stink of the spices didn't kill him, he would have been suffocated to death by all the linens that they wrapped his face with. And let's say he was able to breathe because they made a little nose hole for him or something. Even then, he would have had to be in the tomb for three days in this very wounded state in a cold grave without food, water, or medical attention. All this to say, the Bible gives us details about his death and about his burial to prove to us that his death was not a secret death. It is historically recorded that this man, Jesus, is crucified by Roman authorities under Pontius Pilate, the governing ruler of that region. All this to say that he died a very public death, had a very public burial. You know, Jesus was too poor to uh, get a grave. So what happened was there was this gentleman, if you read in verse uh, Luke 23, toward the end of Luke 23, there's this guy named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. And uh, he was uh, one who was searching for the kingdom of God. And he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And he had a tomb that he had cut out in stone where nobody had yet been buried. And he offered that tomb to Jesus. Now this was also to fulfill Isaiah 53's prophecy. That he will be given a grave among the wealthy. Even though he wasn't wealthy himself. Another evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is that he actually died. It's very clear and evident that he was dead. Another biblical evidence is after his death, on the third day, he appeared alive. He resurrected and he appeared to people. Not spiritually, but physically. So look with me in Luke chapter 24, verse 36 to 43. It's a passage that our sister Eno read earlier. Look at verse 36. So Jesus appears to these homeboys on the road to Emmaus. One of them was named Cleopas. I don't know who the other guy was. And so, first of all, the women see these angels. And they come back and say, look, look, the angels told us that Jesus is alive just like he said. Yeah, and the women are like, yeah, yeah, remember Jesus said it? I think it happened. I think it happened just because the tomb is empty. We can't find his body. We can't find his body. And the men are like, shut up, woman. You don't even know what they're talking about. You, you're, in, you're, you're in emotional trauma. This is post-traumatic stress disorder. All right, y'all women, just go in the back and start praying together. We'll get you some water. All right, you're, you're just cry it out, you know? I, I, imagine what the men said. They totally disrespected these women. But not only that, these two men meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus. So they don't even end up going to Emmaus. They come back to Jerusalem and they tell everyone who was gathered that they had seen. That, you know what they said when they came back? They pretty much, they said, the Lord has risen indeed. What were they saying? They were saying, the women were right. <laughs> That's what these guys were saying. And even then, the guys who were gathered refused to believe it. So this is what happens next. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, boo. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty much the same thing because he scared them to death, right? He appears to them, says, peace to you. But they were startled ah! and frightened. 
And they thought they saw a spirit. They thought they saw a ghost. And this is what Jesus says. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he has said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, I guess they were like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. (laughs) And they were marveling. Okay. Now, if they were still not convinced, they're touching his body. They're looking at the scars. They're like, I can't believe it. This is Jesus. Jesus, can I slap your face or something? (laughs) And they're still in disbelief. This is the, the clincher right here. Jesus says, you got something to eat? Man, I'm sure I'm hungry. Haven't eaten in three days. And look at, look at it. Verse 42. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. Meaning that Jesus didn't like sashimi. He liked his fish cooked. I'm playing. All right, that's a totally bad joke. Anyway, the point of this scripture passage, it says, verse 43. He took it and he ate before them. Jesus didn't say, y'all want some? He just ate it. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, man, this resurrection stuff is real, man. I feel so hungry. Sorry, y'all. I just ate it all by myself. Here, bring me a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. I'll multiply it. Just come, come bring it. Uh, he took the time to eat before them, to show them. And, you know, and if the Bible writers were a little bit inappropriate they might have even followed through and said and then he went to the bathroom later and he probably did because he was resurrected in a physical body jesus when he resurrected he appeared physically not just spiritually it's biblical evidence that his resurrection was indeed true another as uh, resurrection evidence that i think mark driscoll points out here that i find very Something that I never even thought about. Jesus' resurrection must have been real because he convinced his immediate family to worship him as God. Think about that. During Jesus' earthly ministry, John chapter 7 verse 5 says that his brothers thought he was crazy. They're like, what? Jesus, what are you doing? Come on. Come on, young. Older brother, come on. What are you doing? Jesus done lost his mind. And they did not believe him. They treated him with contempt. They're like, eh. But after the resurrection, the Bible tells us that James was totally transformed. James was one of Jesus' brothers. If you want to be technical, he was a half-brother. Right? Because, yeah, obviously. And James went on to be the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And then he authored a New Testament letter bearing his name. The New Testament letter of James is not written by the original apostle James, the sons of Zebedee. It was written by James, the brother of Jesus. Jesus' mother Mary was also part of the early church that worshipped Jesus as God. And there was also another brother named Jude who wrote a New Testament letter bearing his name. You know, it is possible that Jesus was just a very persuasive man. And he convinced a bunch of people to believe that he's God. But I'm telling you right now, to convince your own family members that you are the Messiah. All right. Can you imagine one of your siblings coming up to you or one of your cousins, you know, this week saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Y'all need to follow me. Y'all need to worship me. And you, you slap them. I was like, what are you talking about? That would be a hard task for any man. Unless there was a resurrection. The resurrection to me seems to be the most persuasive reason why his immediate family devoted their lives to worship him as God. So those are four pieces of biblical evidence. Let's uh, talk about some circumstantial evidence regarding the resurrection. First, 
is that the worship of the church, it totally changed the entire Roman Empire. I'll tell you what I mean here. Luke 24 verse 1 says, On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. All right, so which day of the week was Jesus resurrected on? Okay, if you're confused, in the Jewish calendar, the first day of the week started on Sunday. The last day, seventh day, the day of Sabbath is Saturday. The Jews worshipped on Saturday for thousands of years. And you got to remember, the early converts were all Jews. The very initial wave of converts, they were all Jewish Christians. The entire nation of Israel operated on a Sunday to Friday calendar. You work Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then you rest on Sabbath. There was no work to be done whatsoever. It was required by law. Saturday was a holy day. And those who love and honor God and were faithful to him were to keep that Sabbath holy. But then when the church began, it moved the holy day from Saturday to Sunday. Now, who was the original person to to institute Saturday as a holy day? Who instituted that? God did. God said, I created the world in six days and I rested on the seventh. If that's good enough for me, that's good enough for you. I command you. Not to do any work on the seventh day. He's the one who instituted. Who's the only one that can change the holy day? God himself. And that's exactly what happened. The reasoning went like this for the Christian leaders. After Jesus was crucified and he died on a Friday, Jesus was still in the grave on Saturday. I guess Jesus, would, he didn't want to do no work, right? <laughs> he didn't want to honor the Sabbath. He was a good <laughs> Sabbath keeper. Uh, But then on Sunday, he rose from the dead. And it was probably very difficult for the early church leaders to overlook this timing. So the church began to meet up on the day that Jesus showed up, which is on Sunday. So all who follow Christ began to choose Sunday over Saturday as a new holy day. It was called the Lord's Day. And even in the book of Revelation, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, toward the end of the... um, Uh, first century already they're calling sunday the lord's day and this was a huge religious and cultural shift think about it can you imagine some religious group showing up today and claiming that monday is now the holy day and that our followers will not do any work on monday how many companies do you think would give such people the day off How many stores would open up on Sunday and begin closing on Monday just because of some new religious group? I mean, think about the resistance that such a group would receive. Well, that's the kind of resistance that the early church was met with. But because the influence of the early church was so powerful and great, they shifted an entire culture. They shifted an entire work culture. And Sunday became the new holy day on which nobody, everyone refused to do work. And I guess um, modern day after the Industrial Revolution, you know, I guess what we've done is we've decided, hey, let's just keep both days. (laughs) So we have a two-day weekend. (laughs) Praise the Lord for that. I think that was, that was in God's wisdom. He knew, you know, one day people would, you know, start honoring Sunday and then they'd be like, oh, let's just get Saturday too. Can we just get Saturday and Sunday off? We'll be more productive, we promise. <laughs> and then American labor laws and unions, they all started backing this thing. And all of a sudden we have a five-day work week. Hallelujah. If you do not have a five-day work week, I'm very sorry for you. You can still do it. You can do a six-day work week, but I'm sure it is it's tough, right? Jesus. We have Jesus' resurrection to thank for the two-day weekend holiday, the two-day weekend celebration. Yeah. (laughs) The shift from Saturday to Sunday, uh, that is a big piece of circumstantial evidence that the resurrection was real. Just think about it. 
it has continued to affect the cultures of today all over the world. If there was no real resurrection, it seems a little bit strange that the whole world adjusted its culture around something that never happened. Unless it was real and it affected so many people's lives and that influence spread. Another circumstantial evidence is women discovered. They were the first ones to discover the empty tomb. Right? If you look here in Luke 24, verses 8 to 11, these women, they remembered his words returning from the tomb. They told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. And look, just in case you were wondering who the women were, Luke names three of them. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and a whole lot of other women. There's too many women to name. Who told these things to the apostles. The testimony of women in that ancient culture was not respected. Some historians also will say that a woman's testimony did not hold up in a court of law. It was just complete rubbish. Because women were not educated. Women uh, were supposed to just take care of the household and, and have babies. They just were not respected. So if Christians, they were making up a fictitious account of the resurrection in an attempt to push their religion and spread their religion, wouldn't they have claimed that men first discovered the empty tomb? If indeed this was a conspiracy and the followers of Jesus was trying to push their religion, don't you think they would have been a little bit smarter? Why claim that women were the first to discover the empty tomb? Unless that's just the way it happened. And they knew that there was more than enough evidence of eyewitnesses that lived in that time. In the 30s. When I say 30s, I mean just the 30s. (laughs) Around the time of 33 A.D. There were plenty of people still alive. All the way up until like 75, 80 AD. You know, all these people still alive. Who would, who would testify. Look. We would have changed the story. But it didn't happen that way. Women first found it. We didn't believe them. Two other knuckleheads met Jesus. We didn't believe them either. And then Jesus told us to give him some fish. Another piece of circumstantial evidence is Jesus' tomb was never enshrined. It was never turned into a place of worship. It was customary for Jews to enshrine the tomb of a prophet or some holy man. But if the remains of that person's body was not there, the grave would lose any kind of significance. And so Mark Driscoll, he says this. He says, of the four major world religions based upon a founder as opposed to a system of ideas, only Christianity claims that the tomb of its founder is empty. Judaism looks back to Abraham, who died almost 4,000 years ago, and they still care for his grave at the holy site of Hebron. Thousands visit Buddha's tomb in India every single year. And Islam's founder, Muhammad, died on June the 8th, 632, And his tomb in Medina is visited by millions of people every year. Out of all these four major world religions, only Christianity claims to have a founder with an empty grave. You know, historians, uh, when they did their research, they found that the tombs of at least 50 prophets or other religious figures were enshrined as a place of worship and veneration in the Palestinian region around the time of Jesus' death. Over 50 shrines were set up around that time. It was a very common thing to do. For any respectable leader of some religious group, they set up the shrine. But there is absolutely no trace or even an attempt to make a shrine for Jesus. This is because Jesus... His body was never found. Jesus was buried, but he did not remain buried. Jesus resurrected. 
uh, a Cambridge University professor, C.F.D. Mule, says, the birth and rapid rise of the Christian church remain an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself. There is no other explanation that logically and coherently explains why Christianity has such a rapid and dramatic rise other than the explanation that's given by the New Testament. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus paid the penalty. The judgment that was due upon your sin. He paid that price in full. He did not try to escape it. He did not run away from it. He embraced the cross. He endured that crucifixion. And then he died. He died. And he died once. So that you. Once you die. You will never have to taste death again. And then he was on the third day resurrected. In a physical form. Not physical form. In a physical body. In a literal physical body. To show to you the hope that you have of your future. You also will share in this resurrection of your body. This is the Christian hope. The resurrection of Christ. Now, if you don't, if you don't have the resurrection, it's very difficult to live life, I think. Because there is no future hope. Right now, we had a very tragic uh, accident this past week. Some people will not even call it an accident. They will call it a man-made disaster. The Sewer ferry that, really it wasn't a ferry. It was almost like a cruise ship. It had had rooms for people to sleep in. Cars were parked on its decks. It's a fairly large ship. It completely... Um, tilted to one side and then completely capsized. And over 200, about 270 people are still missing. And there's all these families right now. And there was a CNN article that was published this morning saying that the really sad part of this whole thing is that there is a threat of a lot of suicide among the parents and families of those who died. And in fact, this past week, uh, the vice president of the school, uh, he, it was, he, he hanged himself. He committed suicide. Took a belt, strangled himself, and hung himself on a tree, left a note behind, and he pretty much put on the note, the field trip was my idea. I, I take full responsibility for it. And he hung himself. And this morning, CNN was talking about how this is a real um, problem for these Korean families. Many of them are saying, I don't want to live. And so a lot of Korean moms right now are in Jindo, in the city where people are gathered, waiting for uh, the rescue. Uh, the families, they're refusing to eat. A lot of these women are hooked up to IVs because they refuse to eat because they're in such guilt and torment. And they feel responsible. For their, their children's death. When really the objective facts are. What happened. It was a bit of a freak accident. The guy made a really sharp turn. We don't know exactly what happened. In the circumstances leading up to that turn. And then the captain. Did something horrendous and wicked. Something that even. I'm, I, I've never driven a ship in my life. I'm not a ship captain. But I know ship captain culture. And that culture says. That if your ship is sinking, you got to be the last one off that boat. I watched Titanic. I know. <laughs> Remember the captain? He was this dignified man in the movie. Excellent, virtuous man. And while everybody was trying to escape on lifeboats, what did he do? He goes into the control room. He locks the door. And he holds on to the steering wheel before water starts rushing in and kills him. All right, That's what a captain's supposed to do. He's supposed to be the last person off the ship. What happened in this case? He was one of the first ones off the ship. 
And he hid. He was trying to hide from the cameras as he's coming off the ship. And on top of that, he was responsible. Whether he made the announcement or not, he was responsible for these terrible instructions to remain in their rooms. And so a lot of these young 15, 16-year-olds in a neo-Confucian culture, you're supposed to do what your elders tell you to do. So these obedient children were the ones who died, and the rebellious children were the ones who made it off the boat. It really sad. And objectively, the parents had nothing to do with their children's, you know, death. For some of them who, who have, we don't know yet. We're still praying for rescues uh, to be made from the ship. And I, th- I think it's, it's very tragic, not only that lives are lost, but that these families, and I'm sure that some of these families, Korean families, they're Christians. And they're probably hooked up to the same IVs as non-Christians and Buddhists. Because the gospel has yet to really renew their mind and thinking. They are wailing and grieving, and I think rightly so. But the way that we as people who believe in the resurrection, the way we, 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 the way we grieve and wail should be different than somebody who has no hope of resurrection. And that God can even bring good out of some tragi- something very tragic like this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to Christianity. And because of the resurrection, we can face any situation on this earth and still not lose our hope and still not lose our joy. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And because he lives, I know. What's the lyrics again? I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was trying to, I was trying to land that with the dramatic ending. I just totally, I just totally forgot the lyrics. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. You know, it's pretty terrible what these families are going through. But for those who have the resurrection of Christ, there's still hope. You know, you think about how tragic this is. How tragic is it what's happening to 300,000 people that are locked up in prison camps up in North Korea? In the natural, there's no hope of any escape. Just continual torment. Bitter cold without any indoor heat. Tortured. Treated like animals. But in those prison camps, many of those people are in there because of their Christian faith. The difference between a person who gets tortured, interrogated, and let go and a person who gets put into the prison camp for anyone who um, escapes into China and gets caught, the difference between a person who goes to the prison camp and who doesn't is whether you were in contact with a Christian missionary or not or whether you will deny uh, whether you believe in Christ or not. That's the difference. So many of these people, 300,000 people, I know some of them, they were just swept away with their entire family for speaking bad, bad about the government. But let me tell you something right now. In that 300,000 people, 300,000 people in North Korea's prison camps, many of them are Christians. And many of those Christians, they're going to share their faith to those non-believers that are also trapped in that camp. And they are able to go through all of the torment, the torture. They're able to go through the cold, bitter winters. Why? Because of the resurrection of Christ. They know they might suffer now. But they will share in the hope of this glory. Has the resurrection touched to the deep core of your heart today? I encourage you. Let the resurrection sink in deep. You want it to sink in deep before you face 
the difficult circumstances of life. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray right now for anyone in this room that has yet to make a commitment to Christ. Anyone who has yet to turn from their sins and repent and put their hope and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. If anyone in here has not done that yet, I pray that you would breathe upon this message that was preached today. And that you would make these words living and active in their hearts and I pray that Lord you will give them and grant them the gift of faith the grace to repent and to trust in you with all their lives I pray that your word will run swiftly through their hearts and lives and that God that they will cling tightly to the hope that we have in the resurrection Lord we just thank you as Christians, that we have this amazing hope. That we have this amazing hope to share in the resurrection of Christ. That because He's alive, we can be assured that our sins are indeed forgiven. Because He's alive, we know that death does not have the final say. Because He's alive, He gives us hope for every circumstance we might face. No matter how traumatic or tragic, we're able to have hope because of the resurrection of Christ. We just thank you, God, for this resurrection, this resurrection hope. We just praise you for it in Jesus' name.